From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. This week, we bring you Facebook rolls out its Facebook financial initiative, Amex in talks to buy cabbage, and Robinhood blows past rivals in day trades. All this and more on today's show. Now, before we start today's show, we have a special announcement. We are so excited to finally announce our next FinTech Insider After Dark. But naturally, this time it has a 2020 twist. We've gone truly digital. And on the 25th of August, we're hosting this edition of the event entirely online, bringing the full After Dark experience straight into your laptop or phone. No matter where you are in the world, you can tune into this live recording of our podcast and mingle with us after the show. So to find out more and grab your place, visit bit.ly forward slash digital after dark. That's bit.ly forward slash digital after dark. That's all one word, no caps. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to episode 453 of FinTech Insider. I'm Sam Mall, and today we're going to be taking a look at the biggest stories in the U.S. this week. To do this, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Sarah Kachansky. Sarah, I haven't seen you in, Lord, six, seven months, at least in person. Yeah, it's uh, it's been way too long. I actually, I haven't seen Oscar in that long either. It's just <laughs> this COVID thing is really crazy. But caveat, Oscar and I used to work together, so we sometimes go for a beer. Um, or the rugby. Or the rugby. Yeah, we, we go to the rugby a lot. That's probably a conversation for another day. Um, but yeah, no, I'm good. I have British, so I have to talk about the weather. And I'm still too blimmin' hot. Like, honestly, 36 degrees is not okay. It's just not for England. I, you know, Northern Australia sent us their weather. I'd like to send it back. Thanks. I'm done. Yeah, uh, British has a beautiful heat wave. 36 degrees, that would be about December, maybe Christmas in Florida. But we have AC. So it's not fair. Yeah, yes. there, there is a difference. I get it. Um, and we've already kind of mentioned, gave you a sneak preview who's going to be on, but we do have returning the fantastic Oscar Williams Groot, the senior city correspondent for Yahoo Finance UK. How you doing, Oscar? Yeah, very good. Good to good to be back. And, and uh, I've just been on holiday in Cornwall for weeks. I'm fully refreshed and ready to talk about the big headlines. <laughs> fantastic. Did you go surfing? No, I didn't. Actually, down there, if we're talking about weather, it was kind of cloudy and rainy over there. So it's a bit of a shock to the system to be back to this uh, heat wave. Well, we're going to stick then with the weather review because that's important. (laughs) So we're going to introduce our third guest who's making his FinTech Insider debut, and that's Rob Blackwell. He's the chief content officer of the Promontory Network, host of Banking with Interest podcast. And damn, that's a good podcast, by the way, Rob. (laughs) And the former editor-in-chief of American Banker. Rob, how you doing? How's the weather in New York? Let's just get it over with. You know, I'm actually in Virginia. So when you walk outside, it's like walking on sometime in the heat of the sun or something like that. It's it's, it's really, really ridiculously hot. But I do have AC, so I'm just hiding, uh, you know, in my basement. Is there anyone left in New York? I mean, at this point, no. All right. It's a ghost town. I miss New York personally. I would love to go there. I'm dying for some real food. I say that every time I talk about New York City. But Virginia has good food too, Rob. So not, not as out. good as New York. I, I yeah, love Virginia, but I'm but come on. New York yeah, is, I, is special. Hundred percent with you on that. All right, folks, let's get started. We have some incredible stories to go through today. Our first one deals with Facebook, and they basically have formed Facebook Financial to pursue the company's commerce ambitions. This story actually comes out of Bloomberg. Facebook unveiled a new group to pursue payments and commerce opportunities, and they put David Marcus, the co-creator of its Libra cryptocurrency project, in charge of the initiative. Called F2 internally, and a name I approve of, by the way, short for Facebook Financial, the team will run all payment projects, including Facebook Pay, the company's universal payments feature that it plans to build inside all of its apps. The belief is that if users can make purchases on Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp, then Facebook's advertising will grow more valuable and users will spend more time inside the company's apps. Man, there's a lot to unfold here um, and a lot of jokes I could make. But Sarah, I'm going to start with you. Your reaction to the rebranding? Um, well, my reaction to the rebranding is, how is F2 short for Facebook Financial? I don't I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense. Um, a total aside, I think the idea is a good one. Obviously, they've been moving this way for a while. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody. Um, I'm wondering if the kind of the new group um, perhaps is to give it more a, a more kind of solid 
organizational structure, perhaps to help them overcome some of the legal problems they've been having? Because I know they tried to launch payments down in Brazil. The Brazilian central bank was like, "Uh, uh, I do not think so, because their argument cited was, you know, we need to keep competition amongst payments um, on the payment systems. And they were worried that if Facebook came in, it, it would just wipe out the competition. So I do wonder if that's why they've done it. I don't suspect regulators anywhere else in the world are going to be overly friendly with the idea either. I suspect they will come under a lot of scrutiny. So perhaps that's the point of this. Um, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Like you're in, I, on Instagram, you know, something comes up actually talking about Cornwall uh, with Oscar. It's a place I love in the world. And I was looking up restaurants to recommend to Oscar. And now all like on Instagram advertising is restaurants in Cornwall. To be able to just click book or to be able to just click, you know, pay a deposit on that, it totally makes sense. Totally get it. Well, they, you know, and I think it's interesting, of course, putting David Marcus in charge of this because, and Rob, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong here. He was hired back in 2014, right? He was he was leading PayPal at the time when it came about. And it was a big announcement when David Marcus came on. And now it's 2020. So if I did my math right, that's six years later. Yes, you know? I can confirm your math. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> well, you were, you were, you know, an editor-in-chief, so I expect you to be able to do that. Um, but... Uh, you know, if this is one I find interesting. You look at Facebook, you even look at Google, you take your pick. Large, the big tech, whatever we want to call them, Fang, they haven't exactly dominated in the U.S. when it comes to payments and wallets. No, and, and when Facebook launched Libra, it was a bit of a belly flop. You know, I mean, I, I am based out of D.C., so one thing they didn't really do is introduce that idea or grease the wheels anywhere in D.C. with that. So when it came, it just kind of exploded a little bit in their face. And I think they're back on track And now after some recovery period. But that really wasn't necessary. And that's really not how you want to move into the banking system, the payment system within the U.S. So I think it burned them. But it does make sense that David Marcus would be, I think, in charge of this. I think he's the logical choice for them. And you know, he's someone who can keep things in play and maybe use this experience to inform the Libra project so it so it gets better. Yeah, Oscar, one of my favorite things in the notes I'm reading was uh, during Facebook's Q2 earnings call last month, Mark Zuckerberg said he was quite excited about commerce inside of messaging apps. Um, I'd like to see Mark Zuckerberg quite excited. I don't <laughs> think Mark, Mark Zuckerberg quite excited is any different than Mark Zuckerberg not excited or surfing um, I think it would be uh, terrifying, I, yeah. personally. <laughs> well, there's that famous video of him when it, they launched Facebook Live uh, saying, you know, at his barbecue talking about grilled meat. I think that's the most excited I've ever seen him. But uh, that's, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's another story. But, I mean, it's interesting with, with uh, this announcement. I, I couldn't help but read it in the context of this big tech hearing we've had recently in Congress when we saw all the CEOs of these companies get raked over the coals for essentially – it, when it comes down to it, being too big and powerful. And, you know, one of the things that Google got really uh, hammered for was the fact that they were trying to more and more keep people on Google rather than giving people useful doors out of Google. So whereas before it used to be the way to discover the web, now it's essentially, or more and more, kind of, it is the web, you're stuck there. And that seems to be what uh, Facebook's ambition is with this project. It's you know, why would you need to leave to go to this shop over there? You know, just stay on Instagram, pay all that. And of course, it makes sense from a business point of view from for Facebook. But uh, given the political mood at the moment, and, you know, as we've touched on just there, the backlash that they've already faced from Libra, I think they're just going to have huge hurdles in trying to get this over in the US. And if the US reject it, then the rest of the world will follow. I completely agree with Oscar. Um, I was actually going to ask a question, which is, I don't know if anybody else knows, but so uh, you, presumably you pay still using your, your debit card or maybe a bank transfer if you're in part of the world that allows you to do that through Facebook Pay. The payment is then delivered to the merchant. Does this mean that like Visa gets a cut and Facebook gets a cut? So actually the merchant is really screwed over. And then obviously, as Oscar says, if everybody becomes inside this like Facebook world, merchants will have to offer have to accept payments this way or have to find a way to sell their products that way or they will lose a large chunk of of business so i don't i'm just wondering how the model would work i don't i don't know the answer does has anybody else done more reading than me on this <laughs> because in which case you're screwing over small shops you know the instagram brands that advertise all the time so and if you i mean if you put it together with what they're doing with libra it's not hard to imagine that the long-term ambition is that you can cut payment networks like Visa out altogether and you say just use your 
whatever it's called. Is it the Novi wallet or, you know, I can't really remember. And use our payment rails to do payments within our network. And you never leave, you know, you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, if you look at what's happened, one of the, I mean, one of the things that Facebook has been criticized for is putting up barriers to make it harder for other social networks to work with them or other sort of people they see as rivals. So once they get people in there, what's to stop them making it punitively difficult to transfer outside of the payment network, to which point you sort of say, I'll just do it through Instagram because it's easier. And, you know, that becomes sort of anti-competitive. Now, I should say, of course, this is just all my speculation and not what they've sort of said. But if I was somebody in Washington who's looking at the behavior of these tech companies up until now, I would not be discounting this at all and saying, you know, this is serious questions we've got to ask. Yeah, and, and I'm really curious, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw this to you, Rob. We have been talking about big tech, FANG. I still love that name. But we've been talking about big tech and their threat to banking, especially in the U.S. now, for a decade, right? I mean, when Money 2020 kicked off, which you got to admit is funny as hell that Money 2020 is going to be virtual this year. You could not make <laughs> 2020 any worse, by the way. Oh, you could. We have an election coming up. It can always be worse, Sam. Never forget. Yeah. Oh, God, I should have remembered that. You know, I said <laughs> that after my third kid and then the fourth one showed up. Um, but still, um, <laughs> I love you, Eli, wherever you're at. But still, we have been talking about the threat of, of big tech and banking for well over a decade now. But I would say in the past year, a lot of noise has been made, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we have this Facebook announcement. We have Google talking about this, Amazon and Goldman. I mean, you take your pick. I mean, remember that Amazon, I mean, actually Facebook really is target number one, especially coming out of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. I mean, and their role in the 2016 election. I mean, I don't know anyone who's really happy with Facebook or the way it's performed. And they haven't done what's necessary to sort of, again, grease the wheels when it's coming to DC. And I'm not saying lobbying money would solve their problem. I'm sure they've thrown their share at it, but it's rare to see a bipartisan agreement on anything these days. And the bipartisan agreement is that Facebook is no good and up to no good, and we should be watching them distrustfully. And I think, as you saw in that hearing the other day, there was definitely some of that with Google and Apple and Amazon. I'm not the big the big tech companies all have their share of skepticism on Capitol Hill, but I do think it's getting louder. The drum beats getting bigger, and I, I think you are running the risk at this point of congressional action. Congress takes a long time to do anything. It's always easier to bet on them not doing anything because they are so, you know, basically designed to to not do that much. Um, it's not a it's not a bug; it's a feature. That's how they say. So they move really slowly because that's on purpose. But when you start to see these drum beats building and these scandals, you know, having this real impact on the electorate, I, I think you could see something coming, you know, in the next few years, particularly against Facebook, but against all of them. And I wouldn't have said that five years ago. I, I would five years ago. I would have been like, "Nah, it's fine. Everybody likes." Amazon. I was just going to say, does that translate? Do you think to consumer trust? Because consumer trust in Facebook was hugely dented by the Cambridge Analytica scandal, but trust in WhatsApp and Instagram not necessarily as much. I, I, I think it's just that generally people don't know they're part of the same group. Um, so, right. for example, my mum was like, "I'm deleting my Facebook profile. I'm having nothing more to do with Facebook." But she will not leave WhatsApp because it's the only way to get my <laughs> sister, who lives in New Zealand, to respond to her. Um, so, you know, I, I just I wonder. I don't know if it will affect consumer trust, but I again I. I think that's a huge thing they're going to have to overcome because some consumers will be right on it and the convenience of buying through Instagram will be like, yeah, absolutely. Have my bank account number, my social security number, whatever you want. This is brilliant. My life is easier. And there will be a group, I'm almost certain, who are like, mm, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure about this. Yeah, I find it interesting because you know, there was that campaign. It reminded me back around 2008, 2009 was the Leave Your Bank. I think that was the name of it, right? Or leave the big banks and go to the smaller banks. Uh, that did not happen, by the way, as we all know. And with Facebook, there was this big push, right, to leave Facebook and get off of it. And I think Facebook had a hell of an incredible quarter, if I remember right, when they, when they did their, um, when they went in and they talked with the analysts. So um, it is rather frustrating. You would think consumer sentiment and, you know, that the actions of the market would drive this probably even more than politics will. I don't think anything's going to happen in D.C., at least for another, you know, to the end of the year before we see anything happen oh. there. I you know, no, definitely not. I'm thinking more long, you know, over the next three to five years, not, yeah. not anything urgent. Nothing's going to happen before the election. I think the only thing, anything happens in Congress, if a single party actually does take over the house, the Senate and the presidency. But then again, I thought that back around, 
uh, when President Obama was first elected. And it was a struggle. I mean, flat out, I'll say that in the U.S. getting, you know, getting a lot past, you know. Well, and I don't know how much we want to go down that hole with the 60 votes in the filibuster, but the real question now is whether or not the, whether or not the Senate Democrats take away the, the filibuster, which would mean they just mean a majority vote and it would make it more like the House uh, in structure and it would basically enable them to pass more, but it also, you know, it means inevitably when they're back in the minority, then then they're in trouble. So, you know, Well, it, Rob, I'm going to give you the, the last word on this, man. This is a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You're going to be Julius Caesar right now. Oh, no. So F2, this thing going to work? I know it's oh, podcast. I, I, you know, it's like, I, I want to, I, it's like, you know, I feel like passing, uh, you know, right, <laughs> you're allowed. You're I, allowed. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm overall pretty skeptical. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with a down vote that that's not to say that they can't pull it out. I just, I, I have a lot of skepticism going into this. Yeah. It's probably uh, I, I'm safe to say that's probably a shared feeling. Um, across all of us. All right, with that, let's move on to our next story. On uh, this one, man, this was all over the wires uh, the past couple of days. American Express is in advanced talks to buy SoftBank-backed cabbage. This story comes out of Bloomberg. The credit card giant is in advanced talks to buy Cabbage Inc., a deal that would make Amex a bigger lender to mom and pop shops. The all-cash deal could see Amex paying as much as $850 million for the sale. Cabbage was most recently valued at more than $1 billion after SoftBank poured in $250 million in 2017. In the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, Cabbage furloughed hundreds of workers and suspended customer credit lines as it contended with a slowdown in spending at small businesses nationwide. More recently, they provided small business with loans from the U.S. government Paycheck Protection Program. Um, yeah, COVID revealed a lot of cracks, but damn, if you were in online lending, I mean, we saw Amex. I'm sorry, we saw On Deck get acquired, right, for, man, what was that for? Like 90 million? 90, yeah. Yeah, that's pennies on the dollar, is it not, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think that is interesting. I mean, there's obviously, you know, cabbage is a business um, far better than I do. But um, I think what's interesting, the interesting point to me was, was the valuation. So if they were valued at, what was it, 1 billion two years ago and they got their last funding round and they're being acquired for 850 million, that's an interesting. I mean, it's not. It's not awful. If somebody offered me 150 million, I'd be like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" I guess it depends on on. There's two things there. I guess is that kind of like would we call that a market correction, or is it not enough of a difference? You know, given the current economic circumstances, I'd say that's still a pretty good, pretty good out. Um, I guess the question is, do they want this, or have they been forced into it? Um, and it looks to me like. Obviously, things went a bit downhill at the beginning of COVID, did for a lot of online lenders, make total sense. They seem to have pulled things back a bit recently with their activity, um, particularly in the PPP area. I'm just going to call it PPP because I can never remember what it stands for. Um, you know, and, and I think that they did, From correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you have the stats, but they did very well out of serving other banks, so helping other banks process loans. They then lended out, lended out, <laughs> lent out. Um, and uh, I think that kind of almost is their sweet spot, really, is this kind of infrastructure provider. So with that in mind, I wonder if, A, they need to be acquired right now, or B, they're kind of back on track and they can think about this for a bit longer and scale. Um, and B, like, is that, because that's kind of what they do in Europe, where they operate in Europe, if that's the direction they kind of want to go in future, because it seems to be working for them. Yeah, so um, I think it's Fairly well known that we're, we're pretty good friends with Cabbage, with the, the you know with Rob and, and Catherine, the co-founders of it. We actually did a live show in Atlanta from their office. Uh, I think it was two years ago, almost two, yeah, two exactly two years ago. Um, cr absolutely crazy show. So I reached out to them right before we were getting ready to do this, and uh, they actually sent me some breaking news. They have a press release that's going out today, but the three of you get to hear it first, okay? And I'm just going to summarize this. This is around the PPP. Um, cabbage processed and approved via Cabbage Direct as an authorized SBA lender for the PPP, as well as for Customer Bank and Cross River Bank. And if you're not familiar, Customer Bank is behind Bank Mobile, um, for those of you in the U.S. For both bank partnerships, Cabbage processed, verified, and approved all applications. In other words, they did all the work to get SMBs and E-Trans number, which, by the way, is a pain in the ass. And then the banks funded the loan. For Cabbage Direct, they did everything which accounted for 63% of all approved and funded loans. In all, Cabbage approved 297,587 loans, 
which surpasses Chase Bank. So that's pretty remarkable given they only had one employee for every 790 employees at a major bank. And they did this after they furloughed, I think, roughly 90% of their staff. Um, so you talk about spinning quickly. I do think that's a bit of a success story. Um, and all, I mean, Rob looks oh, yeah. good, sounds good. It does. I mean, it, 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 it sure looks good. It looks like good news and to outperform chase, which was, you know, the heaviest of heavy hitters here is quite a feather in their cap, particularly after the kind of, you know, year that they've had so far. Yeah. I mean, it's, let's put it this way. And, and, um, you know, Oscar, I think it's safe to say, I don't think I want to be in the online lending business right now. I'll just go ahead and well, make that bet. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, all these sort of businesses are based on flow and you need to keep the, you know, everyone needs to keep dancing for it to keep working. And given that we're staring a sort of huge global recession in the face and the implications of that aren't entirely clear, that may be why they're, you know, willing to take shelter almost by, uh, looking at these deal talks, even if necess- it's a bit of a sort of uh, uh, not as attractive as they could have gotten if they wait it out. It might be any port in a storm sort of thing, you know. So I don't know. But, uh, yeah, we, we ha- as far as I can see, I don't think they've commented on uh, the deal talks. So it remains to be seen what their outlook is on whether they think this is something they actually want to do or whether they've just sort of been surprised with an offer that they're mulling over. Um, what do we think about this being Amex, by the way? I mean, as being kind of the the one in the in the mix there, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, Amex has been pushing hard into small businesses um, over the last few years. I mean, uh, I don't know if they have it in the US, but here they have a couple of months a year where if you use your Amex at certain small businesses, you get cash back, which um, cash back is not a thing over here, Americans. Like, we kind of have cash back, but not regularly and not frequently. So Amex will give you five quid back for every purchase you make um, in, a, in a small business. So they're really, they've obviously, it's obvious they're pushing it. They have been like advertising that everywhere. I can't open my inbox without, Amex telling me that that is happening this this month and I need to get on it. Um, so it's clearly an area that they think um, is an opportunity space for them, which it hasn't been historically because obviously smaller businesses don't want to pay the extra fees that require taking Amex as opposed to taking Visa and MasterCard. So um, I kind of see where they're going. Um, Amex also needs to update its product suite a bit, let's face it. Like it has some really good deals, but they have been relying on like good deals, good points, cash back for a long time you only have to look at their app to kind of see that so um i wonder if this is a way for them you know it's it's, it's an acquisition to help them to innovate so to move into lending as opposed to credit if that makes sense proper um and to get like to maybe try and take a tiny step towards maybe some somebody like a square or a stripe who builds out that value proposition for small businesses so they're going they're going horizontal across small businesses to try and offer as many services as possible to make them as enticing as possible to small businesses who kind of when you say you've got to pay an extra four percent on you know accepting amex they go oh no don't think so thanks yeah you know it's interesting this will tell you how much the world has changed and, and, and especially the u.s has changed since march I think most people forgot in February, Cabbage had acquired Orchard Platform. What did that do again? What did Orchard do again? Remind <laughs> me. Um, Orchard's pretty interesting. Um, they they did a lot on like a loan market, uh, marketplace. Um, and I'm doing this off the top of my head. So um, if I'm wrong, we'll just edit this out. But they had a really <laughs> good team that, that basically had put together a, a marketplace to pull in a ton of data around, um, especially small businesses, um, and, and have a marketplace and a, a ton of data so, I mean, at the time, the acquisition made sense by Cabbage. The timing, which no one could have seen, sucked. I think that's the official term that you <laughs> would go with. I remember talking to Matt Burton, um, and I remember talking with him the middle of March. And I'm like, dude, you should be buying a lotto ticket, like, right now. Because, oh, my God, you know, rub two pennies together. Good job on the timing. But I, I'll tell you what has slightly surprised me. Before this news came out, we had we had Visa and its acquisition of Plaid. We had MasterCard and their acquisition of, was it Finsity? I always get that name wrong. The other aggregator out of uh, um, the Silicon Slopes in Utah. I did not see Amex making an acquisition to get into lending. <laughs> That's not the move I saw coming. For, from their perspective as well, you've got to think about it um in terms of this being, you know, maybe not the most attractive price for cabbage. Maybe they're just bargain hunting. Maybe they're just saying, hey, there's opportunity here. We can get a business that, you know, it's not 
vital, but if we can get it on the cheap, it'll help us compete with the likes of, you know, as you were saying, Square and all those other people who are really pushing into both payments and lending as a sort of bundled offering rather than uh, leaving it to the banks and you just do the payments. All right. Um, I'm going to stick with the trend on this show just because I want to be on Rob's podcast one day. Rob, I'm going to give you the last word. Do you like that? Uh, do you think this will actually go through? Yeah, I mean, I do. And I, I think it's a good idea for Cabbage, particularly for the reasons we mentioned when it comes to stability. I mean, they have had a rough year. This really gives them something to fall back on and, and, and protection. So in other words, it makes sense for both sides, right? It makes sense if you're Cabbage. It gives you stability. It gives you a, a solid footing. And this no longer people are going to wonder about what your future is because you're owned by Amex. So that's pretty solid. And on the other hand, it gives Amex a huge lending platform pretty sizable lending platform into small businesses when they're been pretty aggressive on the small business card front. So it's sort of a win-win. So I could, I, I think I see it happening. Thumbs All right, up. folks, that's, that's, that's last word, Rob, on that one. <laughs> and with that, we're going to take a quick pause and we'll be back shortly. Banking as a service is deconstructing the banking stack. It's enabling brands to embed finance more easily and to tailor financial products to specific customer needs. This is presenting new opportunities for specialized providers and offers banks extra revenue streams. Download our report for a comprehensive, no bullshit view of what banking as a service is and what it means for the industry. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. That's all lowercase, folks. This podcast is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneer and creator of personal digital banking that helps community financial institutions strategically differentiate their digital offerings from those of megabanks, big techs, and fintechs. So how do they do it? With the Bano Digital Platform, a complete 100% API-enabled open digital banking platform. You get beautiful, lightning-fast native apps for your customers and members and cloud-based core-connected back office tools for your employees. You really have to see these products to fully understand the platform's potential. Visit Bano.com to schedule a demo. All right, folks, let's get on with the show. Our next story deals with Robinhood, who has blown past their rivals in a record retail trading year. The story comes out of Bloomberg. Robinhood's daily average revenue trades, known as darts, were $4.3 million in June. That's about four times the number of fee-generating trades at E-Trade for the same period and higher than all of its publicly traded rivals. The data shows that daily trades at Robinhood more than doubled in the second quarter from the prior period. The firm is revealing the data for the first time in the wake of a surge in online dealing among people stuck at home during the coronavirus pandemic. Just as Robinhood is closing darts, it's closing RobinhoodTrack.net, the website with hourly updates on retail stock. And that was disclosing darts, not closing darts. Robin Rack used data from the app showing broad trends among its users trading to display which stocks were popular with its clients. The information became a proxy for the preferences of individual investors everywhere. Robinhood will stop providing the feed on which the site's information is based out of concern that this represents client activity, encouraging users to copy each other. Um, okay, the past couple of months have been nuts. I think that's safe to say. Um, the Dow Jones, of course, is bonkers. The Dow Jones is not the U.S. economy. I'll say that again. But damn, this is a hell of a story, actually, Sarah. Nice growth. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting from a couple of points. Um you know, to start with on the, the first point, the, the closing down of the robintrack.net. On the one hand, I do see why they've done it. And I suspect that that is in response to the negative attention they've had recently about irresponsible, uh, I was going to say irresponsible lending. I guess it is lending when you're allowed it people to, to use leverage. Um, but, you know, irresponsible customer service or, or not enough customer protection, I guess. Um, so on the one hand, I kind of see why they've done it. On the other, as an analyst, I'm like, no, don't give me one set of data and take another set of data away. How can I compare anything now? Um, on the side for like the day trading or the darts, it's interesting because Robinhood always says, no, no. And again, this is back to the responsibility point. No, no. People on our platform, they buy the stocks, they hold them. We don't really have much day trading. Like we're, we're helping people, you know, invest for the longer term. But then I, I saw from the article, there was a quote that says, the data shows that daily trades at Robinhood more than doubled in the second quarter from the prior period. The top three days in terms of trading volumes occurred in June. 
Now, the first bit of that sentence, I would buy that they just had more customers because so many people piled into investing um, under the, you know, during the coronavirus crisis, found a lot of people either not trusting the banks, but more likely um, those lucky enough actually had more disposable income. So they were looking for something to do with it. Interest rates are shoddy all around the world. Investing makes sense. But the second part of that, the top three days in terms of trading volumes occurred in June, which makes me think perhaps then that there is more day trading going on than you would uh, than they are trying to to make out. And um, just to, to back up that point as well, the the whole point about um, sorry, Oscar, I was distracted by your hand. Well, um, I was just, yes. just going to say that you know I found to that point I found it very interesting. The quote that they gave in that article, the spokesperson said, as customers spend more time on the platform, most of them buy more stocks than they sell. The vast majority of Robinhood customers are not day traders. Now, to me, that that opens more questions than it gives answers. When you say most of them buy more stocks than they sell, well, I could buy three stocks and sell two. Does that not make me a day trader then? And the vast majority are not day traders. Well, how are you defining day traders? You know, the, the term sort of suggests you'd have to trade every day to be a day trader. But say I bought, you know, as we've seen with the Hertz stock example, which is obviously the most famous one recently, I could have bought that when it went bankrupt, held it for three days, four days, and then sold it. Does that mean Robin Hood classed me as a day trader? That's not clear from the quote. And uh, that's what I want to know. Mm. Well, their, their growth has been ridiculous. I mean, when you look at the numbers, right, they said in May they added 3 million new funded accounts. I mean, you know, I, but that second half of that, Sarah goes back to your point. They said half of those were first-time investors, so that's one point five million. My math again is stellar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I've I've been quite open about not necessarily my cons- well, my concerns about platforms of all of this type, not just Robinhood, um, and they link back to a couple of things. One is that kind of the 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 options they give people are perhaps a little advanced for somebody who's coming to investing for the first time. So if you're saying that a lot of those accounts are first-time investors, and then the first thing they can do is get leverage, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that's where you should be starting with this. Um, so, you know, I've talked before about I think perhaps some more protections might be in place, although I got shouted at for saying that perhaps some rules should be enforced so I won't say that again um but I think on the on the other hand you know um getting people into it is 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 good um but they need to be working hard to kind of work out what those people are doing um growth is great but if all those people suddenly go bust when the recessions really really bite they're gonna have a there's gonna be a lot more accusations coming their way shall we say you know, we, we talked about this earlier with Facebook, right? And and would they lose customers with all of the negative press? And with Robinhood, you can almost say the same thing, right? Because they you did have this college student who was using the apps and did commit suicide and wrote, he literally called them out in a suicide note saying, I have no clue what I'm doing. Um, and yet these numbers are ridiculous. I mean, this, again, Rob, are you surprised at all that they're seeing growth like this? I mean, they're if I'm, yeah, I'm looking. Their valuation now is $8.6 billion. I mean, you know, Robinhood looks like they're damn well doing okay. Yeah, I'm not surprised given the fact that you've got an environment where everyone's at home and the stock market isn't acting rationally, right? I mean, it's just saying, <laughs> thank you, you for that. <laughs> you've, been, you've been noting this for months. Uh, the last time we talked about it, you were saying the same thing, right? We're in the middle of it, we're heading toward an economic depression. This idea that somehow we've turned a corner on COVID is not correct, and we, we still have a long way to go. And and we you know we just surveyed more than five hundred banking executives, and we, we were putting out a survey next week. But I'll let you know. I mean, most of the I'd say more than a third of the bankers that we talked to, and these are CFOs and CEOs, all think that the economic impact of this is going to go to twenty twenty two and beyond. And you're not seeing any of that priced into the stock market. And so I'm not a stock market analyst because it, what it's doing makes no sense to me. But I think when people are still in this environment, sitting at home and watching the market go up and up and up and counting on things that may or may not happen, then I, I think people think, yeah, I want to get in on that. And, and Robinhood is, is a platform that's made it really, really easy for them to get involved and, and not pay a lot of fees in the process. So you know, I guess I'm not surprised that when people have a lot of time on their hands, they think, this is a way I can get rich. So <clears throat> we always give Rob the last word in this show because <laughs> we just made that up. But I'm going to add an addendum to that. So just to, just to put this in context, the Dow this week will close above 28,000. 
it, it will, it's down 45 today. Trust me. It'll close above 28,000, which makes no flipping sense when unemployment numbers came out today. That was, this is the first time since March that new filing for unemployment is under a million, but it's still 900 and I think 31,000 Americans filed for unemployment. We still have 15.5 million Americans unemployed. And trust me, we've got a hell of a lot more numbers coming at roughly around October when the U.S. airlines um, are freed up to lay off staff because the airline industry is getting its ass handed to it. Retail's getting its ass handed to it. Um, there, I just had my rant. That felt good, everybody. <laughs> I was due one. So with that, let's move on to our next story. Um, we're going to talk about Revolut. Revolut's losses jumped to 100 million pounds as business surges. Let me read that headline again and let that just sink into everybody's heads. Revolut losses jumped to 100 million pounds as business surges. This story comes from Yahoo Finance, and we just might happen to have somebody from Yahoo Finance on this show, Oscar. Um, I'll summarize this and let you just dive right in. Accounts filed this week show Revolut lost 106.5 million pounds in 2019. That's up from a loss of 32.8 million pounds in 2018. Revenue also rose 180%. Wow. <laughs> Revolut saw customer numbers surge from 3.5 million to 10 million last year. And now it's up around 13 million users globally. The company also has 220,000 business customers. Customers sell 2.2 billion pounds on its cards by the end of 2019, up from 1 billion at the end of 2018. I can keep reading stats and they'll just make your head spins. But I mean, Oscar, you wrote this and then, oh my God, Twitter lost its mind. And I saw so many damn charts comparing Monzo, Starling, and Revolut to each other that I'm tired of it. <laughs> but <laughs> once you jump in, man, I mean, sure, you, yeah. you know, this was your story. Well, I mean, uh, two things to say, I think, on this. I mean, the first one is, uh, going back to your point about Orchid, you know, being, having the, 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 the greatest luck in the world, I think Revolut, in this case, have really lucked out. They raised $500 million in February, so closed it just at the right time. Um, even still, you know, they've, they've raised a further $80 million since then. So that sort of suggests that, uh, well, it, it might suggest that they need additional or based on their projections, but it could also be ju they just think, let's strike while the iron's hot and fill the coffers while people are still keen. Um, but that obviously is a big help for them now, which I think is why you see one of the interesting things for me in the accounts was they didn't put out any warning about their future viability, which we've seen a lot of other fintechs have to do. They haven't really furloughed. I think they furloughed some staff and lay, made, made some layoffs, but not on the scale we've seen at, at, at many others. But I mean, I suppose the second thing that I find interesting about this is contrasting it to Monzo, which of course is the sort of, their sort of bet noir uh, over the years. Monzo, I've been covering both these companies for many years, and Monzo, traditionally, I think, one of its big virtues was seen as these guys are laser-focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is serving the, you know, the consumer market, really, really getting that right, and building huge amounts of loyalty among their customer base. Whereas, you know, often one of the criticisms I'd hear of Revolut is, oh, they're trying to boil the ocean, essentially. They're trying to do everything all at once, and surely that's going to lead to a loss of focus on something. And, you know, if you're trying to spill a million, spin a million plates, something will fall over. Now, that strategy is paying dividends because they've diversified so much, both across business lines and geographies, that they are much less exposed to the downturn than Monzo is. Now, might just be because they've got a lot of money in the bank that I'm saying that, but that seems to be a reading that I would stick by. So... Um, I have a couple, just to pick up on a couple of points you made, Oscar. Um, one is people keep comparing them to Monzo and Starling, but they don't have a banking license. They're judged very differently and they have very different set of rules they have to play by according to the regulators. So some of the reasons everyone talks about Monzo's down round, well, Mon part of the reason that all of that occurred was to do with the FCA increasing capital requirements on Monzo, to do with covid which Revolut would never have because it doesn't have a banking license in this country. I think the other thing is about furloughing. Where are most of Revolut's staff? They're not in the UK. They're in countries which don't have furloughing as an option. There are a lot of them across Central Europe. Now, I don't know how true these are, and I, I won't speculate on that, but I will say that there was a big wired piece about how employees in places like Poland and Lithuania were basically just being told to, to go, like because the, the rules there about employee protection were very different. 
Now, again, I know there are a lot of people out there who have InfoRevolute, so I don't know the truth of those statements. But I would say I think it's very unfair to compare Revolut to businesses like Monzo and Starling, which are entirely UK-based, have a different licensing regime to fall under, um, and a very different set of rules and requirements to follow, and therefore their expenditure is different. If we wanted to compare Monzo and Starling, then we that would be a different conversation. But I just it really grates for me the way people put Revolut in the same box as those because I, I just I see from a customer's perspective I'm getting you fired up <laughs> I just yeah well from a customer's perspective I do see how they could be very similar but from you know an, an analyst perspective and from somebody who kind of knows a little bit more about the the workings of them Oscar and I've had this debate before about <laughs> this is not new um but uh you know for somebody who understands the workings of them I think it's it, you know their their results should stand alone when looking at them as a business the one number I do have questions about is the fact that, so to Oscar's point, they've expanded hugely geographically, but 99% of their revenue came from the UK market. Now, I don't know how you calculate that, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong there, but I wonder, are they saying, are all transactions rooted through UK customers? Are all customers who registered in Spain actually based in the UK? I don't, I, I, I just can't, I'd love some detail on that stat, basically. It's not, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I think the one thing I do find interesting, both Monzo and Revolut have launched in the U.S. Um, I can tell you within the the folks I know, and Rob, I'd love to get your perspective on this. Um, I literally have heard no one talking about them um, outside of geeks like myself, right? Whereas I have had a ton of folks I know outside of banking actually ask me about Chime and Varo, for example. So, right. you know, these homegrown ones where, you, again, you can say, well, there's a good difference because Varro money has gone down the path of, you know, actually going to the OCC and the FDIC. And I think their CEO said they will be profitable next year. Um, right. I don't know. You know, so, I mean, big difference there. Yeah, really big difference. At, at Revolut is, I mean, it's hard to break into the U.S. market. And I think it's Amen. easier when you're, you're homegrown here and have the ability to navigate some of the regulatory waters, which are, are very different from the U.K. So, I'm sure the UK is just as complicated, but our, our system is, it can be bewildering. And uh, I, I think breaking in and getting some kind of press and movement is really tough. I think they, what, they just came into the US not that long ago. I, I think it, it'd be tough in any environment to make noise when you have all this other stuff going on here. But but still, I, I think they've got some challenges ahead of them in terms of the US market. That's a good summary by Rob for your, you know, Rob's last word. And as usual, <laughs> Sam will do an addendum to it. Um, it also doesn't help when one of the major, you know, uh, kickers on this for having it is, you know, the waiving of foreign transaction fees and everything else, especially in the U.S., where basically I can go to Puerto Rico on my passport. I think that's it. Uh, maybe there's a country in Africa. I don't know. We basically can't go anywhere right now. Um, oh, no. You know, yeah. we're, 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 we're stuck. <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are stuck. So if that was your value prop. I mean, Canada even won't let us in. And I love Canada. And they're turning us away at the border, damn it. You know? so uh, Probably with armed guards, too. You know, yeah, probably. You know that the island is turning away. Ireland is not officially turning away Americans, but hotels are refusing to, uh, to take you in if you're American. So we've got a lot of Americans turning up in Ireland because the ports are open, the flights are open. It's one of the last direct flights that's still running. I think it's between Dublin and places in the U.S. And you turn up at a hotel and they're like, you're American, you're not coming in. We are making the British folks that which used to go on those stag and hen parties to like Romania look good. <laughs> Y'all will be invited back now. <laughs> we took the crown. Um, our next story is about payments giant Stripe who poached GM CFO in the latest high profile hire. The story comes from CNBC and man, I love watching the hires. To me, that tells you so much about a company. Stripe has hired General Motors chief financial officer. Man, I'm going to slaughter the name. Divya Surya Devara, I think I was actually close, as they took steps to fill out their C-suite amid an e-commerce boom brought on by the pandemic. Surya Devara was named GM's first female finance chief in 2018. She actually joined the company when she was only 25, if I remember right, and has had a brilliant career um, at GM. At Stripe, she'll have to balance aggressive growth while maintaining the highest standards and discipline and fiscal responsibility, Stripe said. Stripe's mission to increase the GDP of the internet is more important now than ever, Surya Devara said in a press release Tuesday. I really enjoy leading complex, large-scale businesses, and I hope to use my skills to help accelerate Stripe's already deep growth trajectory. And um, I'm originally from Detroit. I hear a lot about what's going on in Detroit. She's leading Detroit 
course, Silicon Valley, um, which might be a slight step up for it, but Detroit's okay. But, you know, my understanding is she actually had the ear of the uh, CEO of GM, another female um, in, in a, in a very male dominated space there. And, uh, I mean, you know, it was really someone she leaned on heavily. Um, personally, I, I love this hire. I think it was a great move, but it, it just, everyone's going to say the same thing. So when's the IPO coming? You hired a CFO. I mean, that's pretty normal, isn't it? Well, I, I think it was uh, John Collison I was reading in the FT basically playing down speculation about the IPO, saying it's not in the sort of medium term horizon or the, uh, you know, some sort of basically vague brush off phrase that they all sort of trot out. But certainly, yeah, when you look at not just this hire, but the string of hires they've made recently in the C-suite, it definitely points to moving towards an IPO. But then again, I mean, if you look at, for example, um, uh, what Klarna has done in uh, over here and you know, others like TransferWise, they kind of are just growing and growing and growing and don't really need to IPO. I think there's less of a need to IPO these days uh, if you don't necessarily think the timing is spectacular. If I was Stripe, I would wait until things settle down. As we were saying just before, you know, the Dow is insane right now. All the markets are just crazy and the idea of getting a accurate and clear price as you come to market that's not going to lead to either huge spikes in which cases people say you left you know money on the table or a fall or just volatility for six to 12 months that takes your eye off the ball of managing the business and instead focuses you on trying to explain to investors why everything's going haywire every quarter you know i would just stick private for now and try and wait this out particularly if given how well financed they are does strike do anything wrong i'm gonna sound like a fanboy here but i mean honestly sarah when's the last time they made a bad move oh i can't really think of one i can't i can't i can't think of one either isn't that weird i'm sure to say about a company i'm sure i'm sure there are and were i a customer of theirs i might have a different perspective um I'm, i'm sure were i to go digging there would be uh you know, forums or chats or Twitter threads out there from customers who who've struggled with things, but I I honestly can't I can't think of one. Um, for what it's worth, I completely agree with Oscar. I, I don't know why you would IPO right now. It seems like a completely bonkers thing to do. Um, and like, just stick with it. If you're well funded, you've no need to to get out. Like, if you have to get out, then yeah, okay, maybe that's a way out. And particularly if your investors are pushing you, um, if you're perhaps you know very heavily reliant on SoftBank, you might find yourself under a little bit more pressure of late to IPO. But outside of that, yeah, sit with it, sit pretty, keep growing your business. I mean, having a CFO also, by the way, makes a lot of sense just generally. Like, if they want to IPO, perhaps in the next two years. Get them in now, get them started, start getting things in order. And then when you go to start thinking about IPOs and IPA paperwork, they can just go, ta-da, here you go. I was going to say, I think you're dead on right. I think that's what they're actually doing, Sarah, is it's a longer play. Because I'm looking at some of the other hires they did. They hired Mike uh, Clayville from Amazon Web Services to be the chief revenue officer. They hired Trish Walsh, who came from Voya Financial as their general counsel. To me, it looks like they're building up a team. And then I guess, Rob, we will see. But, you know, maybe in the next year or two, possibly go for an IPO. And, oh, my God, I can only imagine. I think their valuation right now is at about $36 billion. They're only second to Ant Financial. And somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're the second largest unicorn when it comes to fintech out there. I don't know anyone that comes close. I'm going to go on a limb and say I'm right. Let's just all nod. I think you're right. Say, Sam's yeah. right on yeah, that yeah, one. If not, we'll edit it out. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can always edit it out. But Rob, I, I'll give you the last word on this one. Actually, Rob, I'm going to segue a little bit. So I'm hearing rumors that Airbnb is going to IPO. Now that one I can see because I think they're screwed right now. So if, if you had to look at one or the other, Stripe or Airbnb, which would be your preference? Oh, I agree with the analysis that Stripe doesn't make sense to IPO now. Wait wait until things have settled down. Uh, Airbnb is an entirely different matter because, gosh, their their business is really, I mean, talk about something you can't really blame them they couldn't have seen something like this coming but you know that that whole entire system is ground to a halt so they've got to figure out a way that they can survive until the pandemic is passed and right now we don't know when that is and obviously parts of europe and other parts of the world are, are returning to some semblance of normal but speaking for the u.s right now we don't appear to be anywhere close to returning to normal anytime soon so and that's a huge chunk of the airbnb market so i could see them wanting to do anything that could keep them afloat 
for a measure of time, just something that can give them a lifeline. Can I can I interrupt the final word series and just <laughs> say... You get the addendum, sure. I would love to see Robin Hood's day trades the day Stripe goes. Oh, <laughs> my God. That would be... Yeah, uh, a hockey stick isn't even the word, right? It'd be a rocket. It'd just be like just a boom. vertical line. Yes. Oh, my God. Everybody would be jumping on that, probably including me. Okay, now we're going to move on as we're getting to the end of the show just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover There's because there's so much happening in the world in banking and in fintech. And we can't cover all of these, but we're going to give them a quick shout out. So, Sarah, why don't you take the first one? Sure. So the first story is that Goldman Sachs and Barclays are among the bidders for GM's credit card business. So Goldman Sachs is looking to buy General Motors credit card unit as it looks to double down on its consumer banking arm. Barclays is also among a small number of bidders for the automaker's credit card business, which has about $3 billion in outstanding balances, the report said, adding that a decision is expected in the next few weeks. I should say this is from the Wall Street Journal and Reuters. Um, Goldman currently has a much smaller presence in consumer banking. Which has been looking, which it has been looking to strengthen. Um, as part of its consumer push, Goldman has been offering personal loans and saving accounts through online bank markets, which has grown quickly since its 2016 launch. And Goldman also launched a credit card with Apple last year. Um, I think. I think this is. I don't think Goldman Sachs looking to buy GM's credit card business is weird. I think that I kind of see where they're going, particularly on the consumer business side. Like, take something on that's already established. Take on. Take on the books. The weird bit I actually think is Barclays because I didn't think Barclays had that much of a presence in the US anymore. I thought they'd actually pulled out of the US. Um, so, and I'm assuming, and I may be wrong here, that Goldman, uh, I'm assuming I may be wrong here, that GM operates only in the US. So I find it a kind of, that's the one I want to know more about. Goldman, I'm like, yeah, sure, makes sense, carry on. Yeah, and I'll be surprised if, uh, I mean, their current providers, Capital One, I'll be surprised, to be honest, unless there's some incredibly sweet deal <clears throat> out there. That, that they move. All right. Our second story is around squares, a revenue surge, 64% thanks to, in a large part, the Cash App. Square second quarter sales, like I said, jumped 64% on increased online business activity and a surge in the number of people using the company's peer-to-peer payment app. Net revenue in the period ending June 30th was $1.92 billion compared with $1.17 billion a year ago. With the Cash App part of the business generating $1.2 billion in Q2 revenue, up 361% from a year earlier, the company reported. The Cash App saw a spike in new users in April as people signed up to receive government aid. By June, the service had more than 30 million monthly transacting active customers, up from 24 million in December. The pandemic and the accompanying economic downturn have hurt small businesses that rely on Square's payment tools. However, millions of people have started using the company's Cash App to send and receive money, and some businesses have moved online to survive. Man, uh, yeah, the Cash App has been ridiculous. Um, I I looked this up. It added 9 million accounts in 2019. So you're talking 6 million in the first six months of this year. Um, Again, don't ask Sam to do math. That's freaking good. Um, I do find this amazing. We talked about Stripe never making a wrong step. Um, I find it amazing that Jack Dorsey has Twitter, which is just a minefield of nonsense that I happen to love, but still it's crazy that he's, he's, he spends half his day at Twitter and half the day at Square. And I look at Square and I'm like, oh my God, the growth that they have. The one thing I will say is the acquisition by Apple of a, um, a company up in Canada where you can actually use it as a POS all in the device itself. If I'm Square, I'm looking at it going, mm, okay, that one's interesting. And what's going to happen there? But we'll see. All right. All right. And Sarah, last story. Uh, yeah, so this one is that in the ongoing uh, Wirecard saga, which I assume is currently in production by Netflix, um, Singapore charges Wirecard agent with falsification of accounts. So a Singaporean businessman with multiple ties to Wirecard has been charged with falsification of accounts, marking the first set of charges issued by the city-state since it kicked off an investigation into the collapsed German payments company last year. Singapore Police's Commercial Affairs Department last month charged the man with falsifying willfully and with intent to defraud letters to Wirecard, saying that his company, Citadel Corporate Services, was holding hundreds of millions of euro in escrow accounts, when in fact, they did not hold such a balance, according to charge sheets. They lied. A web of business connection ties... A web of business connections ties Citadel to Wirecard, as well as two corporate suspects named in a Singapore criminal probe that kicked off in 2019, and to Senjo, where Mr. Shan Mugaratanam served as director from its incorporation in September 2015 to November 2016. So as I commented at the beginning, 
it's just chapter like or episode, I don't know, like 24 of this saga. Um, and I have an addendum to the story, which I saw earlier, which is I can top that. Jan Marsalek, who is another Wirecard executive, is now on Interpol's most wanted list. The COO. He's gone missing. Well, yeah, because apparently he has links to like the Russian Secret Service. Anyway, I'm leaving that there. <laughs> yeah, Matt Damon will definitely star in this movie as like an older born COO type. And I can't wait. It, actually, <laughs> if this was a movie script, it never would fly. They'd be like, yes, absolutely. Too nuts and too crazy. They're making Enron look good, by the way. All right. And finally, our last story is around Barclays. They are being probed by the UK privacy watchdog on accusations of spying on their staff. This story comes from Reuters. Earlier this year, Barclays said it was changing a system that the bank was piloting, which tracked how employees spent their time at work after they were accused of spying on their staff. People expect that they can keep their personal lives private and that they were also entitled to a degree of privacy in the workplace, an ICO spokesman said. Late in February, Barclays said it was changing how it used the software so it would now track only anomalized data in response to staff feedback that the system was intrusive. Systems are becoming increasingly common among banks and other financial firms which use voice recognition and other behavior tracking tools to watch for unusual behavior that could indicate misconduct. In 2017, Barclays faced widespread criticism when it rolled out a system known as Occupy I? What a horrible name. <laughs> Occupy. I can see the guys at Queer Eye going, nope, and suing for that one. <laughs> Which tracked how long people spent at their desks. Um, you know, I'm very curious. I'm going to go to you, Rob, on this one. Seeing as how all of us now are working from home and everything else, man, if, if they were tracking my, you know, um, uh, Google searches of 11FS was, they would be so disappointed in me at how boring of a person I actually am. <laughs> be honest, not my kids. Kids are horrible, <laughs> but me, I am boring as hell. I, you know, I've seen a lot of banks recently go in this direction, the bigger ones. And if you ask them, what they'll tell you is they're doing it in part, obviously, to cut down on things like fraud and harassment and even cultural problems, I mean, as we saw here in the U.S., Wells Fargo got into a lot of trouble for severe cultural issues that it had related to cross-selling. And so there is this promise that you can use some of this software as a kind of tool that lets you know when things are off track. And as a business proposition, I understand it. It makes sense to me. And you think to yourself, yes, I want to prevent fraud. I want to prevent cultural problems at a bank but as a someone who's an employee wow it just makes you very uncomfortable i mean uh, to, to your point i i think my my company would be very disappointed in what they find it'd just be pretty pretty stupid stuff or buying something for my kids on uh, amazon I, I need to buy a cooler you know it's not that exciting but overall this feeling i think if i felt like my company were watching me that closely and didn't trust me then that would make me rethink my company yeah, I'll give you the view as a parent in the U.S. whose kids are, you know, doing school from home. They would find me Googling math questions <laughs> probably about 99% of the time <laughs> and just looking for the answer, which is incredibly depressing. How about from a British point of view, Sarah? Or, or well, what, I do, think what do you think of this my, nonsense? <laughs> my gut feeling is like, hell no. Um <laughs> I think summarized well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think from a perspective of kind of like uh, to Rob's point, like, well, you don't trust me. Why don't you trust me? Um, you know, you hired me. So if you don't trust me, then then what's the problem? And also my reaction, perhaps as somebody who's just, you know, uh, quite stubborn would be like, I'm not telling you. And if I'm telling you, you got to tell me. Okay, so what's the CEO doing every day? What's the COO doing every day? What's the chairman doing every day? This is no reflection on our own management team at 11FS. But my my response would be exactly that. Like, no, you don't get to track me unless I get to know what you're doing. Because that's kind of like, a, a, you know, a, a fair balance of power when it comes to something which I feel is as intrusive as this. Also, to go back to the earlier point, if you're measuring somebody's productivity by how much time they spend at their desk or online, then you are in another age. <laughs> like, All right. Amen. Oscar, I'm giving you the last word on this one <laughs> because I know what word I want to use and they're just going to bleep me out. So. <laughs> Well, I, take on this? I, I'm just going to close with an anecdote that, of a colleague that I used to work with who told me uh, where in a previous job that they did have tracking software on their computers that monitored how often you were active. But the, the only way it did this was obviously by 
it's quite rudimentary just measuring your keyboard activity so what he used to do was just put a stapler on his space bar and just go walking off for lunch you know and the computer would be like oh yeah yeah he's working he's working all it was was a word document with you know 12 pages of spaces and he would come back happy as larry you know there's always ways to game these things and you know either you're going to game it or as we've discussed people are going to be unhappy Uh, just talk to your people amazing so there you go folks work hacks from Oscar. Perfect. <laughs> and with that, we're done with this week's news show. So we want to thank um, all of our guests for being here. And we want to actually make sure we give our listeners a chance to reach out to you if they'd like to. So Oscar, best place for folks to reach out to you. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter, Oscar W. Groot, uh, G-R-U-T, bit of a weird one. Um, or yeah, you can read all my work on Yahoo Finance UK. All right. And Rob, and make sure you tell us where we can listen to the podcast, by the way. Uh, all right. So you can find me on Twitter at Rob Blackwell, AB. That's uh, pretty easy. And then the podcast is banking with interest. It's on iTunes, Spotify, you name it. We're there. And start with the Mark Cuban interview. Cause it was <laughs> one of the best. I'll keep hyping that up. Cause it was Ep- episode three. There you go. You jump you right go. into it. Episode three. I think for episode three, I had like David Breer and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Uh, As for me, Twitter's great. Sam Mall, nice and easy. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps it make it better. It helps others find the show. And we do read the reviews, folks. Speaking of making it better, we'd love for you to give us your thoughts via a super quick survey. Just visit Bitly FinTech Insider Survey. Real simple. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or FinTech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thanks, everybody. Bye.